Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Well, good evening, everybody. Okay, we're good to go. So this is lecture number 17 of Anthropology. Welcome to those who are watching us online, listening on podcasts, and those of you who brave this frigid Hawaiian weather um, to make it here tonight. For those online watching us, it's dropped into the 60s, mid-60s here. So that's why I got the flannel shirt on. Um, some time ago, I thought I'd bring these, someone gave me a couple fossils. So we've been talking about fossils and evolution, and this is a fossil of a fish, and this is a, a fossil of a snail or trilobite, or I don't know what a trilobite really looks like, but anyways, if you want to look at these after class, you're welcome to. These are fossils, and as you know, fossils are not made by something just dying because it deteriorates or gets eaten by animals or gets blown away or whatever. Fossils need something that dies quickly and is lots of pressure and kept from the oxygen around the air and animals and things like that. So uh, fossils are attestation to a worldwide flood more than to the theory of evolution. But tonight, as we continue with anthropology, we're on page 100, 100, and anthropology is the study of man, and we already looked at the origin of man according to the theory of evolution, and tonight we're going to look at the origin of man according to, we'll call it the theory of creation. I certainly believe in it. I believe it's a fact, but scientifically you can't prove creation, so that makes it a little bit of a challenge scientifically um, because you can't go back and do the scientific method and recreate and watch it happen. But we have all kinds of science that supports creation, and we talk about some of that tonight. But if you look at page 100 in your notes, number two, creation, we start off with the Bible verse, Hebrews 11.3, which says, by faith. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So it takes faith to believe in creation. But it doesn't just take faith to believe in creation. If you look at your notes there, evolution and creation have at least one thing in common. They are both based on faith. Both based on faith. Neither can be proven, since no one can go back to the beginning of time and try to reconstruct what happened. So when someone criticizes your faith for believing in creation, it, well, they shouldn't criticize the fact that you have faith because they have faith that they believe in evolution. And the evolutionist believes that everything came from nothing. And the creationist believes that everything came from God. So who is the fool? <laughs> One who believes that an a omnipotent, all-powerful God created everything or someone who believes all this came out of nothing, out of nothing. If you look at your notes there, creationists place their faith in the word of God, evolutionists in the words of men. So they both have faith, but one places their faith in God and the other places their faith in men. So where are you going to place your faith? And that will determine whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, apparently. So what's the biblical support? And as we get to it, I want to mention that oftentimes you hear even Christians talk about Genesis 1 as if Genesis 1 is the only place that creation is talked about. And so we have well-known preachers and, and pastors and 
Christian book writers who believe that Genesis chapter 1 is an allegory or poetical or it's not literal, be taken literal. It's as if if you get rid of chapter 1 of creation, uh, of Genesis, you've taken care of the creation debate. And I want to show you in the verses that we look at next that that's absolutely not true. The creation is talked about all through the scriptures. It starts in Genesis 1, but it's mentioned all through the scriptures all the way to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So look in your notes there. The biblical support. Number one, God. God states three times in one verse that he created. So he's making a point. God states three times in one verse that he created. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And this is God speaking. And as you know, Genesis was written by Moses. Moses obviously wasn't there at the creation of the world. So the only way he could know this is if God told him and revealed it to him. So God is revealing to Moses, who wrote it down, how things got started. And in Genesis 1.27, it says, notice, three times that God created. And God had Moses write this down. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God's testimony, which is written by Moses here, states three times in one verse that God created. But it's not just in Genesis 1. We have Roman, I mean, number two on your outline there. Moses attests to the literal six days of creation. Some people don't believe in a literal six days of creation, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. They believe in some modified kind of creation that doesn't really fit with what the scriptures talk about. But Moses attests to the literal six days of creation at least three times that I could find. Three times that it was six days. And he mentions it in Genesis 1, he mentions it in Genesis 2, and he mentions it in Exodus chapter 20, which we'll look at in just a little bit. And he refers to the creation of man at least six times. So at least six times, Moses refers to the fact that man was created. That he didn't evolve, he didn't just happen to come about, but that he was created. So this is Moses' testimony. So right from the get-go, we have God letting us know that he created, with Moses writing that down. We have Moses attesting to it. And then, number three, this one is huge. The fourth commandment is based on the literal six days of creation. The fourth commandment is based on the literal six days of creation. And we'll look at it in just a moment in Exodus 20. But if you don't believe in the literal six days of creation, then you have really no basis for the fourth commandment. So what is the fourth commandment? Well, let's find out. Look at Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. And again, Exodus is written by Moses, but he's recording things that God wants him to record, and often he records direct quotes from God himself. And in Exodus 20, you might recognize that as the chapter where God is speaking and giving what we call the Ten Commandments of God. Someone has pointed out they're not ten suggestions, they're ten commandments. And what we call the fourth commandment, we find in verses 9 to 11. And we'll pick it up in verse 8, actually. Verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So that is the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then he gives us a rationale for keeping the Sabbath day holy. And he goes all the way back to creation. And he mentions the literal 
six-day, 24-hour day creation. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, we're going to see in a little bit that some people want to say that the seven days mentioned, first seven days of creation, six days God's creating, seventh day is resting, that those are an indeterminate length of time. Could be thousands of years, could be millions of years. And they say that because there are Christians who are also wanting to believe in evolution and they're trying to reconcile um, atheistic science with the Bible. And so they think if they call the days long ages, not 24-hour days, that they can fit evolution into here, or at least they can fit into the fact that it's an old earth. Some, as we'll see, some Christians believe God created, but they believe before he created man, there had been millions of years, may it be billions of years before that, where animals died, lived and died, and the earth was created, and, and things like that. And the way they get that is by saying that the seven days in Genesis 1 are not 24-hour days. And there are a lot of reasons why that's kind of foolish. Um, the, the Hebrew word there, yom, indicates a 24-hour day, how it's used in Scripture. Um, you also have, he says, evening and morning each day. So he kind of indicates it's a, it's a regular 24-hour uh, day. But look at this, this passage in Exodus 20 makes no sense if these aren't 24-hour days. He says, for six days you shall labor and do all your work. Well, he's not saying for six indefinite length period of time you shall work. <laughs> and then on the seventh day, in other words, you retire. You know, you're done for some indeterminate length of time. It doesn't make sense. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. So if your son or daughter believes in this day-age theory, that each day is an age, they might say, well, look, the Bible says here I'm not supposed to work for a whole, <laughs> a whole thousand years. <laughs> you know, I don't have to work anymore. Wow, so good. Yeah. And then he says it again. For in six days, in case you missed it in verse 9, he says it again. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So if you are going to believe in the fourth commandment, that you are actually supposed to set aside the Sabbath as a holy day to the Lord, then you have to understand these as 24-hour days, solar days, just like we do. And you're going to see in a little bit later that not everybody believes that, but the only way not to believe it is to ignore the Scriptures. Well, we have God mentioning he created three times. We have Moses who attests to it. We have the fourth commandment. Uh, number four in your notes, King David attests to the literal creation of the world. King David attests to the literal creation of the world. And David is famous for the psalms he's written, and you could turn to many of his psalms that talk about God's creation. The one listed here just, is just one of them that I've listed, Psalm 33. And in Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, Lord is in all capital letters, so it refers to God's personal name, Yahweh. For by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So he host would be the angel. I mean, the, well, it would probably be the stars, could be the angels. Um, and then he goes on to say, verse 9, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. 
So King David understood of a literal creation that God spoke and it came to be. And then a fifth person who attests to this is the prophet Isaiah. Number five in your notes. The prophet Isaiah attests to this fact and quotes God saying that he is the creator of the world. And so Isaiah is God's prophet and he is speaking for God, writing God's words in Isaiah chapter 45. And writing what God himself speaks, is speaking, Isaiah quotes God in Isaiah 45, 12. And God says, it is I who made the earth and created man upon it. That should be enough. That should be enough. God claims to have made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their hosts. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. So just getting rid of chapter one of Genesis and saying it's some type of allegory or poetry or not to be taken literally um, is foolish because we have all throughout the scriptures talking about how God created. Then number six here, Jesus attests to the literal creation of mankind in the New Testament in Matthew 19. So we not only have it in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we come to the New Testament, and Jesus himself attests to the fact that God, of course Jesus is part of the Godhead, that God created mankind. And this passage is extremely significant to us given the news that we're reading these days about uh, same-sex marriage, about polygamy, about polyamory, if you're not familiar with that term, um, this now people are moving toward legalizing relationships in marriage that include multiple partners and multiple partners of various sexes, uh, regardless of the number of people involved, and we're moving toward that quickly. And that's because of a misunderstanding or a denial of creation of man, woman, and what marriage is. So you get rid of creation, you get rid of marriage. And so it took a few years we got rid of creation and we're teaching evolution in our schools and that has resulted now in us getting rid of marriage as the Bible defines it. And this is very clear in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is speaking and in verses four and five, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees who wanted to know his view on divorce. And there were two schools of Pharisees at this point. There were some that were very conservative and said you could only divorce your wife for adultery. And there was a very liberal group of Pharisees that followed a rabbi who said you could divorce your wife for, quote, any cause. And you'll see that Jesus used that phrase, any cause. So there were the any cause divorces, and the example rabbis used would be burn toast, or there were the adultery only view. And when Jesus speaks to them, We'll pick it up in verse 3 for context. And some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? So he's saying, Which view do you hold? Do you hold the any cause view or do you hold the more strict view? And he, they're testing him to see which side of the, the balance he's going to be on with these two opposing groups of rabbis. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who, and here's our word, created them, from the beginning, so that's Genesis 1, made them male and female. So if you believe in creation and that God created, you believe that he made the first two people male and female, and then he instituted marriage. 
and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what he defines here, Jesus defines, all the going all the way back to creation, is he tells us what marriage is. So anything else actually is not marriage. Do I believe in same-sex marriage? Well, there is no such thing. Now, you could have it legally where people say they're legally married, but the definition of marriage biblically is a man and a woman, one man, one woman. Now, if you don't want to use the biblical definition of marriage, then it could be absolutely anything, and that's what's happening in our society today, that we're redefining it. And that makes sense if you don't believe in creation and you believe in evolution, then you can just keep changing all these things. But if you believe in creation and you believe that God created one man, one woman, to be together, and ideally for life, uh, but because of sin, Jesus points out that Moses permitted divorce because he realizes there are times when couples need to separate because of sin, and that happens, and God permits that. Um, so Jesus says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh, with therefore God is joined together. Let no man separate. And so Jesus said, this is ideal. This is the way it was supposed to be before there was sin. And they said to him, verse 7, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? Well, he didn't really command. He permitted it. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. The beginning means creation. When creation when God created man and woman, there was no divorce because there was no sin. But he said, because sin entered, divorce is allowed by God. And then we have some parameters in the scripture which aren't relevant to uh, our topic today, so I won't go down that path. Um, but the important thing here is to realize that Jesus attests the little, literal creation of mankind, and that's where we get marriage from. Number seven, the apostle Paul attests to the literal creation of mankind. The Apostle Paul attests to the little creation of mankind. I'm not going to look at all these passages. Uh, number eight, the Apostle Peter attests to the literal creation of the world. He's talking about the creation of the world. Peter does. Apostle Peter. Number nine, the Apostle John does. And not only the Apostle John, but the 24 elders in heaven attest to God being the creator of everything. Well, this is an amazing passage, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You can fool people on earth, perhaps, but you're not going to fool people in heaven. So look at Revelation chapter 4. And we'll pick it up in verse 9 so we have a little context. And when the living creatures, uh, the word creatures in the Greek there is zoon, which means animals, when the living animals give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. So here we have creatures, but they're really animals. The uh, King James Version says, I think, uh, brutes or something like that. Uh, so we have part of God's creation, worshiping him. And we also then have, verse 10, the 24 elders who represent the church will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying... Worthy art thou, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things. And because of thy will, and that word will could be pleasure, it's translated as pleasure in King James, English, and because of thy pleasure or will, they existed and were created. So it says here, 
two times about create or created, that God did it. But here we have heaven attesting to the fact that God is the creator and he created all things. And that's why we worship him. So that's pretty strong testimony. And if you only had one of these things that we looked at, one verse, that would be enough. God only has to say it once. It doesn't have more authority because God says it more than once, but sometimes we need to hear it more than once for us to appreciate it. And then look at number 10. We call this the strong angel because that's what he's called in Revelation 10. Uh, Number 10 on your notes, the strong angel attests to God as the creator of the world. And looking at Revelation 10, this is pretty amazing. We have this strong angel It says in verse 1 of chapter 10, And I saw another strong angel coming out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he goes on to describe him. And then let's skip down all the way to verse 6. And this angel swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer so here we have the strong angel from heaven and he swears (laughs) he makes an oath not swear in terms of cursing but swear and make an oath and he makes an oath based on the fact that God is the creator how about that so here again we have heaven attesting to the fact that God is the creator of the world so the scripture is quite clear so please don't be led astray don't be fooled um by someone who just goes to Genesis 1 and claims that it's some type of Jewish poetry or, or, or something like that because we have creation all through the Bible. Well, let's look at the next page here. The timing. How old is the earth? Uh, page 101 here. Evolutionists suggest that the world began in about... That's a number I can't read, but four and a half billion years ago, basically, is what that says. Four billion, five hundred million years before Christ. Although there's a difference of opinion among creationists as to the age of the earth, so it's important to realize not all creationists agree how old the world is. Um, In fact, it's becoming a smaller and smaller number that believe what I'm going to tell you in just a moment because a larger and larger number are being influenced uh, by the secular world. Although there's a difference of opinion among creationists as to the age of the earth, a conservative view holds that the earth was created in around 4004 B.C. 4004 B.C. And it didn't have to actually, you could say 4000 B.C., but um, (coughs) we picked that exact number, 4004, because that's based on the work done by a man by the name of James Usher, who lived from 1581 to 1656. And he was an Irish archbishop and a theologian. And he did this long before we had as much information as we have today of historical time periods and things like that. And people have redone his work and come up with basically the same period of time. It's just amazing what he came up with. And the problem with dating the age of the earth is not the biblical data. It's some of the data after the biblical data and periods of time that we're not really sure um, how many years things happened throughout history in certain periods of time. But within the scriptures themselves, God brilliantly, which isn't surprising because God's brilliant, um, gave us a way to reckon how old the earth is. And we'll look at that in just a moment. So uh, this is a realistic date if one believes in literal, and this is the key, 
literal 24-hour solar days of creation and recognizes, and this is the other key, no gaps. No gaps in the genealogical tables in Genesis. And the genealogical tables of Genesis are found in Genesis chapters 5 and 11. And we're going to see a little bit later that those are two of the more controversial chapters in the entire Bible, Genesis 5:11, and they look just really boring to us because they're a list of names. But they're really unique. But we'll get that in a bit, a bit. So that's the time period. And I would support the idea that mankind is only about 6,000 years old because if the earth was created 4,000 years BC and now it's the year 2000 something, that's 6,000 years. And you can say, well, wasn't the earth created thousands or millions or billions of years before man? No, we know that it was created, started to be created, man was created on the sixth day. So the earth can't be more than five days older in the beginning of the earth and some of the things are maybe four days older than man. So what's the result of God creating us? Well, man was created in the image of God. Man was created in the image of God, and that in Latin is called the Imago Dei. So if you want to look theologically astute, just say Imago Dei, okay? That's your, the image of God in you. And the Bible's quite clear about that. One place is right at the beginning in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. As the Holy Trinity is creating man, in verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us, the plural there is a plural of uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make man in our image, according to our likeness. So there's something unique about mankind, and by man, we'll see that he means male and, male and female. He says, then let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man is unique. Just like God rules, mankind gets to rule. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we're created in God's image. So what does this mean? Well, we don't know exactly, but it seems to mean at least some of the following things that I'll point out. Number one, well, man is a living being, and so is God. God is a living being, and as Paul in Acts 17 is speaking to my ancestors in Athens who are a bunch of idolaters who, who had stone gods and, and things like that, he goes, we serve a living God, not this stone structure, this statue that you have. We have a living, breathing God, and we also are living, breathing creatures. Now, it's not found here in Acts 17, but God is also a spiritual. He's a spirit, and so are we. We, we are spirit, we have a physical body, but we also are spiritual beings. Um, number two, man possesses intellect and a will. Intellect and a will. So rocks don't have that, plants don't have that. Um, to some extent, maybe you could say animals have that. But because we have that, man is able, therefore, to make decisions and have dominion over the world. Dominion over the world. And in Genesis 1.28, as we continue reading from verses 26 and 27, which we just read, verse 28 says, And God blessed them after he made them in his image. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the fact that we can rule and subdue other creatures is a factor of us having the image of God in us. 
So we have the image of God in us, and that seems to include some type of dominion over other creatures. But a real big one is number three. Man has a moral nature. Man has a moral nature, and therefore is able to fellowship with God. So animals don't fellowship with God. Obviously, plants don't, rocks don't, but mankind can. We have a moral nature. We know right and wrong, and we can communicate with God. As you look at your notes, um, when sin entered the human race, the image of God in man was defaced, but not erased. Defaced, but not erased. In other words, it was damaged. Sin damaged the Imago Dei in us, but it didn't take it away from us. Um, in Genesis 9:6, we see that we still have the image of God even when there's sin involved. In Romans 9, 6, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So God institutes capital punishment for murder right here in the early stages of creation. And he says, why? For in the image of God he made man. So he's saying, you can kill an animal, that's not the same as killing another human being. Why? Because the human being is made in the image of God. There's something there that is a form of, could we say, even theocide when you kill another person. Because we are made in God's image. We are unique beings. We are special beings. We are different than animals. And you're thinking, huh. Well, evolution doesn't teach that. Exactly. See, evolution gets rid of the, the imago Dei. Gets rid of the image of God in man. And that's why you have people who believe in evolution, uh, whether it's you know, these animal rights activists and things like that, that they think the animal has the same rights as you, uh, that you're the same as an animal when it comes to, or an animal's the same as you when it comes to, to rights and privileges and things like that. And when you get rid of creation, that makes sense. But when you believe in creation, God says, no, we are unique. And if you get rid of the Imago Dei, you make man an animal. We're merely an animal. We might be the highest form of animals. Some would even say we're not. But we're merely an animal when you get rid of the Imago Dei. But when you have the Imago Dei, we are unique creatures. And that's why God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. For the image in the image of God, he made man. Now, some of you are going off thinking, does that mean that we should always have capital punishment for murder? Um, we have different periods of time throughout Scripture. They're called dispensations or administrations or economias in Greek, which means house laws. The rules change throughout the periods of time. And during this period of time, capital punishment was required for murder. It's allowed when we come to the New Testament in the book of Romans, where we're seeing that it's allowed, but it isn't commanded. But here it is commanded for murder. But the issue has to do with the image of God. Someday, if you look at your notes again, this image of God will be renewed in the believer. So it will be renewed. It's been defaced, not erased, and someday it will be renewed. And looking at Romans 8.29, which if you've been at this church at any length of time, you're beginning to see that this is one of my favorite passages because it helps us know what the plan is. And this is the plan verse. Most Christians get focused on verse 28 and miss the more important verse, verse 29. For whom he, God foreknew, he also predetermined to become conformed to the image of his son. 
This is what God wants us to be. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is this Imago Day. We're being perfected. We're becoming more and more like Christ. And so we have three stages of our salvation, which we'll talk about later. But the third stage of salvation, when you're glorified, that's when you have the image of Christ in you. You're not, you're not a God, but you are like Christ in his perfection. Notice what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that you and I should be on a regular basis moving in the direction of looking more like Christ, of reflecting the Imago Dei in us. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, Imago Dei, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So we are being changed into Christ's likeness, this Imago Dei that was defaced, not erased, and is being renewed in us. So that brings us to a, a really nice cartoon, comic strip with Calvin and Hobbes next in your notes there. And here we have Calvin looking in the mirror, and he's in his underwear there, and he's got his arms showing his muscles in the mirror. And he goes, made in God's own image, yes, sir, kind of boasting. And uh, Hobbes attire goes, God must have a goofy sense of humor. <laughs> I like that. But Calvin's right. We are made in God's image. But what Calvin's wrong about, it isn't our physical nature because God is not a physical being. God is a spiritual being. So when we're talking about being in God's nature, it's not about our physical being. It's about our spiritual being that's made in God's image. Now, there's some proposed alternatives to a literal seven-day creation that I want to take a few minutes to mention. And this information I gleaned from a source online, uh, the BioLogos website. If you know BioLogos, um, they, they, they don't believe in a literal seven-day creation. And this is from a man by the name of Ted Davis. It's not a complete direct quote, but it's pretty close to a quote. I might have changed a few words around, but it's almost directly quoted from him. But proposed alternatives to literal seven-day creation. One is called theistic evolution, and another one has to do with the day, age, or older theory. So the first one, theistic evolution, is the belief that God used the process of evolution. So God used the process of evolution to create living things, including humans. That's theistic evolution. So it's a person who believes in God and believes in evolution. Now, to me, this is the most ridiculous view. This is my opinion. If you hold it online, you're listening to me. Um, I think it's the most ridiculous view. <laughs> it's like saying, I believe in God, but I don't believe what he says. I believe in evolution, but not what the scientists say about it. You know, so let me put a little bit of evolution to, with a little bit of God and put it together and come up with theistic evolution and saying, I believe God did this. That seems kind of foolish to me. But here are the core tenets or assumptions of theistic evolution. And again, um, this is largely from Ted Davis and the BioLogos website. The Bible is not, is what they'd say, not a reliable source of scientific knowledge about the origin of the earth and the universe including living things. Okay, so you can't trust the Bible when it comes to scientific knowledge. It is not a reliable source. They also would say the Bible is a reliable source of knowledge about God and spiritual things. So the Bible is a reliable source of knowledge about God and spiritual things. So when it comes to spiritual things, you can trust the Bible, but you don't want to trust it when it comes to science. 
And then the third bullet point there, scientific evidence is irrelevant to the Bible. Scientific evidence is irrelevant to the Bible. It is simply not a science book. Again, those are, these are the words of Ted Davis and BioLogos website. Um, I merely gave you the fill in the blank, but those are his words. Scientific evidence is irrelevant to the Bible. It's simply not a science book. And lastly, the fourth bullet point, the Bible tells us that God created, not how God created. Wow. The Bible tells us that God created, not how God created. So this obviously is in direct defiance of Genesis chapter 1, where God tells us how he formed man out of the dust of the earth, breathed in him life, formed the woman out of his rib, put him to sleep. It's very descriptive how God made everything, and God spoke, and things were created. So God tells us, but this theistic evolution view um, does not believe in biblical creation and what the Bible says. So then we have the day, old, day age, or old earth theory, and this is held by a lot of Christians, a lot of seminary professors. I've had seminary professors um, that held this theory. And this theory started becoming more and more popular in, I think, the 1800s. And then, especially after Darwin's book came out, it gained a lot of momentum because it looked like science was proving that the Earth was old. How could the Earth only be 6,000 years old when we have these rocks that allegedly um, when I was growing up, they were millions of years old. Now they're billions of years old. So that's a pretty big mistake the scientists made before by billions of years. But they went from millions of years old to billions of years old now. Um, and so someone came up with this theory, the day-age theory. Here it is. The day-age or older theory takes the days, quote, days in Genesis 1 as long, indefinite periods of time. Long, indefinite periods of time such that neither the age of the earth nor the duration of any particular period in creation history can be determined from the Bible. Neither the age of the earth nor the duration of any particular period in creation of history can be determined from the Bible. Wow. Here are the core tenets or assumptions of the day-age theory, or the old earth theory. They say scientific evidence for an old earth is generally reliable and needn't be refuted. Scientific evidence for an old earth is generally reliable and needn't be refuted. They also believe animals died long before the fall of Adam and Eve. Animals died long before the fall of Adam and Eve. And they also believe quite a bit of evolution may have happened, but humans and at least some other major forms of life were separately created. Separately created. So they believe in evolution but they also believe it's possible that there is some special creation by God of humans and perhaps some other forms of life. That's the day-age old earth theory. Now, the next series of pages, which are extremely interesting to me, <laughs> um, pages 104 to 110, uh, we copied from Answers in Genesis. And... That's a great website, great group. If you want scientific evidence of creation, if you want to see how they debunk evolution and the things evolution says from a scientific standpoint, go to Answers in Genesis. Excellent. But this one particular section hits a very important topic where the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5 and chapter 11. 
And if you look at your Bibles, if you have them there, in Genesis 5, we are given a genealogy, but there's something really unique about the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, as well as the genealogy in chapter 11. Unlike other places in the Scripture, God gives us the ages of the people when their children were born and tells us how long they lived. And so, for example, let's pick it up in Genesis 5.1, and we'll just read the first part of it. This is the book of the generation of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. And he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. And notice, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of his son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Now, if Seth was 105 when Enosh was born, what year is this? Well, we know that Seth was born when Adam was 130 years. So at 130 years, and we call this Anno Mundi, the year of the world, we'll start at zero. So Adam starts at zero. Seth is born at 130. So we know that Seth's son, Enosh, was born in the year 130 plus 105 in the year 235, if I did my math right, okay? So we know what year it is. Well, this is why these genealogies are brilliant. The whole chapter goes through a list of all these people by name and how old they were when their son was born. Now, some people say, well, it's not their son, it's their grandson. It doesn't matter if it's when their dog was born. It doesn't matter what the relationship is because you have numbers. And again and again, people will quote other genealogies in the New Testament where they actually skip people. And they often do that for mnemonic device, so you'll remember, so they have 14, 14, 14 generations. They may skip a generation or something like that. But this one has numbers. You can't put gaps in between the numbers. And that's what the gap theory here, the day-age theory tries to do. It tries to put gaps in between all these people. Well, you would have to put thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps millions of years of gaps between the people who are being born, and it just makes no sense. There'd be no sense of giving a genealogy. Well, if God wanted us to be able to figure out how old the earth was and how many years ago man was created, this is the most brilliant way. He tells us. All we have to do is add up the numbers and add backwards. And so we have that in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. So now look at your your notes, and I just want to highlight a few things in these many pages. If you're interested, you can look at it in more detail. But we've yellow highlighted your pages on 104, and I don't know why it keeps throwing in their website or address there, but it says, Genesis Genesis 5 and 11 contain two such genealogies. It may be hard to believe, but Genesis 5 and 11 are actually two of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. Who knew? Turn the page to page 105. Top paragraph. A straightforward edition of the chrono genealogies 
which yields a date for the beginning near 4000 BC. Chronologists working from the Bible consistently get 2000 years between Adam and Abraham. Okay, so if you read the Bible and look at the genealogies there, consistently you will see there are 2000 years between Adam and Abraham. And few would dispute that Abraham lived around 2000 BC, both secular and biblical speaking, 2000. So many Christian leaders, though, claim that there are gaps in the Genesis genealogies. One of the arguments is that the word begat, as used in the timeline from the first man Adam to Abraham in Genesis 5 and 11, can skip generations. If this argument were true, the date for creation using the biblical timeline of history cannot be worked out. So you have to say, can you in, implement or insert thousands of years between these begats? The rest of this paper is going to refute six arguments that people give to show you that you can't do that. And so you don't have to read all that. I'm not going to read all that tonight, but if you find this interesting, you can read it. Um, and it will show you that Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 are airtight. There is no way to get around the numbers that are in Genesis 5 and 11. There's no way to get around, if you believe the Bible, if you take the Bible literally, the earth is only about 6,000 years old. And you go, what about all the dating and all that? Well, we don't have time to go into this now, but actually there's no way to date something because you don't know how old it is to start with. For instance, it's like me deciding that this table is eight feet long. Well, how do I know it's eight feet long? Well, I have to have something that's eight feet long to measure the table to see what's eight feet long. But I don't have something that's eight feet long. So you don't know if the, if the earth is 10,000 years. We don't have a measuring stick for 10,000 years. You don't have anything to compare it to. You have to have an eight-foot stick to compare this table to it to know if it's eight feet long or six feet long because that's what it actually is. You have to have something to use to measure with. You have to have a known measurement. We have nothing that we actually know is 10,000 years old or 100,000 years, and we certainly don't have anything that we know is a million years old or billions years old. We don't have anything. So you don't have anything to measure it with. Um, but you can go to any one of these websites that I talked about Answers in Genesis, and you can see the problems with the dating. But we don't have time to go into that now. But... We need to go finish up the last page um, that we have here, page 111, the substance or the nature of man, the nature of man. So we looked at the origin of man. Now we want to look at the nature of man. And we're going to look at your substance, your soul, and your sin. And next week we'll start hematology, hematology, which is, goes into detail on man's sin. But the nature of man, his substance. Man is both material and immaterial. Man is both material and immaterial. So we have the two things, material and immaterial. His material nature refers to his body, his body. His immaterial nature includes, but is not limited to, that's important, includes, but is not limited to the following, soul, spirit, heart, mind, will, and conscience. So God, the Father, is immaterial. And so is God, the Holy Spirit. I mean, God is a material being. Um, Jesus has both a material and immaterial because he's like us, and so do we. Jesus has a physical body. Although the words, look in your notes there, soul and spirit are sometimes used seemingly interchangeably in Scripture, they also are used to refer to differing aspects of a person's being. 
The term spirit is used in reference only to man's immaterial nature. The term spirit is used in reference only to man's immaterial nature. While the term soul is sometimes used to refer to the entire person, the entire person, both his or her material and immaterial natures. And we do that too. Like, how many souls were on board that ship that sank? Okay? We're referring to the whole person. Look in your notes again. Some have described the soul as man's self-consciousness and his spirit as his God-consciousness. So some people have described the soul as man's self-consciousness. He's aware of himself. And spirit is God-consciousness. So they will say that animals have, have souls. They have self-consciousness. But animals don't have spirits. They don't have God-consciousness. And that sounds good until, look at the next sentence. Interesting, it is man's soul that is described as lost and in need of salvation. You'd think it would be a spirit, (laughs) not man's spirit. So it's man's soul that is described as lost and in need of salvation and not man's spirit. Suffice it to say, the Bible is not clear on the distinction between the soul and the spirit. So we don't really know. We know that man has a material nature, the body. We know we have an immaterial nature, what includes our soul, our spirit, our mind, our heart, our emotions. But what the difference is between your soul and your spirit is not clearly defined in Scripture, even though it might be clearly defined by a preacher (laughs) at times. Okay? It's not really clearly defined. So what is this soul that is not clearly defined? Your soul, and you could put in parentheses your immaterial nature, because we're talking about your whole immaterial nature there. Where does it come from? Where does the soul or the immaterial nature of man come from? Well, there are three basic views of where it comes from. The first one is a non-Christian view. It's called pre-existence. And pre-existence is the view that holds that our souls existed before we were born. Our souls existed before we were born and we're just waiting for a body to inhabit. And this is the heretical view held by Plato, or Plato, as the Greeks pronounce it, and the Mormons and others. So my understanding from Mormons is that one reason they have so many children is that there are so many souls waiting to inhabit bodies. And so when you have lots of children, it's a way of doing evangelism because all these souls end up in a Mormon body. These souls are just waiting. Well, this is heresy. There are two Christian views of where your immaterial nature, your soul, comes from. The first one is called creationism. The second one is called traducianism. Let's look at the first one, creationism. Creationism is the view that holds that every human soul is a special creation by God. Every human soul is a special creation by God and enters the fetus either in the womb or immediately at birth. In the womb or immediately at birth. Well, there are some problems with this view that this would mean that either God has to create a sinful soul and put it in a sinful body, or he has to create a perfect soul and wedge it into a sinful body because they're all born sinful, the Bible says. So is God creating sinful souls? Well, that can't be. And then it's like, well, so is he putting a perfect soul in a sinful body? Well, that doesn't seem quite right either. So there's some tension with this view. The other view, and it's a view that I hold, and I think most evangelical uh, Christians hold, uh, theologians, is traducianism. And this view holds that just like the body, the soul, your immaterial nature, is passed on by the parents. Is passed on by the parents 
through natural generation. This is the view held by most conservative theologians. So just like you inherit your physical characteristics, your physical material nature from your parents, you also inherit your immaterial nature. And think how this makes sense. You can have the personality of one of your parents. You can have the personality of one of your grandparents. I mean, how many times do you say, oh, he's just like his grandfather? And I've been told that, and I never even met my grandfather. Well, I guess I met him when I was three, you know, one to three, but I don't remember my grandfather. But apparently I have the personality of one of my grandfathers. Well, where did I get it from? Well, I inherited it from him. And we have propensities that our parents have, our grandparents have. We have likes, we have uh, personalities and things, and it makes sense. And to me, this is why it makes sense that although adoption is a beautiful thing, and I think people should adopt, it's harder often with an adopted child than it is with your natural child, even if it's the same natural environment. Why? Because they haven't inherited your immaterial nature. They've inherited the immaterial nature of someone else that's no longer their parent. And sometimes the reason that person is not their parent is not for the best of reasons. And that person had something in the immaterial nature that made them not a good parent, and that child has inherited that. And so we inherit things from those who have gone before us. And if you think about that, that would mean that your spiritual nature, your character, is affecting your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. I mean, you're affecting people, not just physically, but spiritually. If this view is true, and this one seems to make the most sense, the scripture is not clear about it, we don't know for sure, but it seems to make sense that we inherit our immaterial nature from our parents, and that's why we tend to be like them. We have a phrase in English that says, uh, he's the spitting image of his father. Well, you know where that comes from? It's really the spirit and image of his father. He's the spirit and image of his father. He's got the immaterial nature and the material nature of his father, but we just say spit and image of his father. Which brings us to sin. We're talking about the nature of man, his substance, his soul, or immaterial nature, and his sin. And we'll just introduce it tonight, and then we'll go into it next week. Looking at your notes, number three. Due to the sin of Adam... All mankind is born in a fallen, sinful condition. All mankind is born in a fallen or sinful condition. Man sins because he is born a sinner. He is not a sinner because he sins. That's very important. Man sins because he is born a sinner. He is not a sinner because he sins. But if you listen to the lyrics of secular songs or listen to not even in songs, but teachings of people, they have this idea that we're just born innocent. We're born innocent, oh, the baby's so innocent and pure and like that. And we all know that's not true. Just hang around with the baby for a while, and as they grow, you don't have to teach them to sin. <laughs> it's in their nature <laughs> to sin. It's in your nature. Um, so we are born sinners, and that's why we sin. So next week, we'll be talking about sin, and it might take us a couple weeks. One of the things we'll talk about toward the end of the study of hamartiology We'll talk about the unpardonable sin and uh, the sin unto death. So we'll be talking about those, and that'll be next time. So let's close there. And I realize I didn't open in prayer, but let's close in prayer. <laughs> Lord, we're grateful that you have been teaching us tonight, and we pray, Lord, that because you've taught us that we would give you even greater praise, greater devotion, greater glory.
for having created us, having loving us so that you would create us. Lord, we worship you as a creator and we pray that we would use us to lead others who are misled, who are misguided, who have been lied to, that they might come to know you as creator and then as savior. And we ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.